before I launched into my talk, and before I properly introduced the GC Merits series, uh, I, I thought I might as well name what some of you might be thinking straight away. And that is, why on earth is a single 25-year-old doing the series of G2 uh, on marriage? Why, why am I the one that's instigated this? Why on earth am I the one that's talking on marriage today? And uh, am I not totally unqualified to do this? And, and that will be a fair response. And in a number of ways, I'm pretty sure that my entire job, and most things that I preach on, I'm probably totally unqualified to have a go at. But uh, there's a famous Christian quote that says, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And whether I like it or not, or you like it or not, um, I have felt called for G2 to really explore the meaning of marriage. Um, I, honestly, for over three years now, um, I felt like it's something that we need to address, we need to speak about directly, it's something that's happening in our community. And uh, I've, to be honest, I've been hoping someone else would do it for quite a while. Um, I've been hoping that a, a married couple would, would want to instigate a marriage series. Um, but awkwardly, often when you see a frustration or a need, uh, by divine sense of humour, that might well mean that God is nudging you to do something about it. If you see a need in the church, rather than get frustrated about it, I challenge you that maybe God's saying something to you about being part of the answer to that prayer. And so here I am, standing in front of you, pioneering the GT marriage series along with Josh, and uh, giving that disclaimer straight away. I know this is unexpected, but... When you realise what I've realised, when we discover more of what God tells us about the meaning of marriage, then you realise why it's totally fine for me to be the one talking about it. Because the big revelation I've had about marriage is that it isn't actually about us. It isn't about me, it isn't about you, it isn't about what we think or want or feel at the time. This goes way bigger than you might realise. So there we go. That's why I'm speaking. In fact, before we go any further, I'm just going to quickly pray for us, uh, just in case anybody has walked in here, uh, either thinking, why is Miriam talking, fair enough, or um, with a lot of baggage or preconceptions about what marriage might be. I would love us to hear, as if for the first time today, what God might have to say on it. So let me pray for us quickly now. Father God, I thank you that you're already here. Holy Spirit, you're so welcome. Presence of God, you're already amongst us. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus that we may have eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying to us about marriage, Father. We put down any preconceptions, any hurts, um, any judgments that we have about marriage, we put them down. We look at you, Jesus, and we say, teach us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So 2010 was quite a big year for me, and uh, for my understanding of what marriage means. Uh, it was Christmas, the Christmas holidays of my second year at uni. Uh, it was New Year's Day, 10 o'clock in the morning, that um, I found out something that's um, changed my life. I was standing at the top of the stairs, Mum was standing at the bottom of the stairs, the home that I grew up in. And uh, it was in this moment, in this scene, that Mum looked up at me and said, Miriam, your father and I are getting a divorce. Uh, Mum and Dad were married for 32 years, they both loved Jesus, they both trying their best to follow him. And that moment was like somebody taking a grenade thrown it into my ribcage and my heart exploded. It was massive. Totally shook me up. Was not expecting it. Fast forward a few months in 2010 and uh, this was also the year of the nine weddings, one dress. And uh, this is a tomboy triumph for me, right? I literally spent 16 quid on one dress and made it to nine weddings with no crossover. There's, there's some of them there. All different weddings, 
What a dream. That I, was, I was so proud, honestly. But this also meant I had to sit through nine different wedding ceremonies. Most of them were Christian, not all of them, but most of them were in churches. Most of them included a talk and loads of stuff about marriage. And I'm sitting there with my parents having just broken up. Wedding after wedding after wedding. And basically, I got to this point with Jesus where I said, I don't know what the point is. I don't, why are we doing this? And I really want to believe that it's for a reason bigger than uh, just humanity, because humanity doesn't always do a good job at doing this for the long haul. So, Father, will you teach me about marriage? Jesus, will you teach me? Also, for G2, I think this series is relevant and timely now, because we have had loads of weddings in the last couple of years. We've always had a few, but we've particularly been hitting a wedding season, and I know that a number of students have shown up and kind of gone, oh my word, why are there always weddings around? Fair enough, guys, because we've got this massive 20s to 30s ministry, and it also means people are getting married. So between us, we have done the band for, we've preached that, we've done all the vows for, we've turned up and partied with, we've helped set up, we've helped clear, clear down for nearly 10 weddings. There's another two coming up this summer. Now is the time that us as a community need to explore together. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Why are we going through this marriage stuff? What is the point? So two minutes on your tables... What is the point of marriage? If you could summarise in a sentence what you think the point of it all is, have a go. Summarise in a sentence the person next to you. <laughs> okay, you just had a sentence. Concise like a dictionary. Potentially you've had a range of answers. If you watch the G2 Marriage Fox Pop film, you will have also noticed in our community we had a range of answers. I particularly enjoyed all the kids. <laughs> I don't know! Or when little Luke actually acted out having a baby on camera. <laughs> Amazing. If you haven't seen that on YouTube yet, it's quite funny. So what I've discovered through scripture and through the whisper of the Holy Spirit is that the whole point of marriage is that it isn't about us. It's not about people finding partners and completing each other feeling happy, feeling in love, finding our fulfilment. It's not actually about humanity at all. Hollywood doesn't really tell us the full story either. It doesn't even tell a true story. The media, literature, society, they do give us glimpses of what love might be or what love can be like, what marriage is in some cases, but most of what is preached to us by the world totally misses the point. It makes an idol out of marriage, an idol out of relationships, an idol out of sex. It can, it can become extremely difficult to see the truth when we're, our overwhelming message of our culture says something that has nothing to do with Jesus in it. Again, hence this series. So we're going to explore today how marriage is an image that God created, a gift he gave to humanity to reflect himself and his relational nature in his very being of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Marriage is, more specifically, an idea God had in mind all along for when his son Jesus would walk the earth and lay down his life for his bride, his people, his church, us. This is why we have to start this series with a real look at marriage, the behind the scenes, the real meaning. This is why I also found it okay, in fact, brilliant fun to sit through nine weddings in one summer, because I am fiercely hopeful and encouraged by marriage despite what happened in my family. I absolutely back it, cheer it on, and want to see more of it. Because marriage isn't about me or you getting what we want. Marriage is about laying it all down. Laying it all down in love, a sacrifice. It starts with God, it's about God, and it's perfectly modelled and fulfilled in Jesus laying it all down for us. 
on earth, some people are called to get married. And the reason for this, as God explains, is to reflect the ultimate marriage. God's love for us. Some people won't be called to get married on this earth. But we'll come on to that later, why that really isn't the point either. Also, a quick disclaimer at the start as well. This series, in our three parts, we're not going to be addressing uh, the whole debate going on about same-sex marriage. That's not in this series. We're also not addressing um, gender stereotyping and roles of men and women in any overt sense in marriage. That's not in this series either. When you see where we get to today, it will become more clear why that would actually be distracting us from what we're talking about today. Um, Later on in the year, we are going to address some of those things. And equally, you might have that conviction that I had. You might be talk writing now for that. But just to let you know from the start, when you see where we go today, you'll understand why those aren't in this series. So back to the meaning of marriage. If marriage is God's idea, then we need to look in the word of God. We need to look in the Bible if we're going to understand this thing. There's no point taking my word for it. We need to look at the scriptures. And it turns out, from Genesis, the first book in the Bible, to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, the whole deal starts and ends with a wedding. So we're going to start in Genesis now. If it helps you to have the Bible open and literally jump through the pages with me so that you see how it's woven through scripture, great. It's also going to be on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, right at the kickoff. So... Genesis chapter 1, creation of the world, men and women are referred to as being made in the image of God. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so right from kickoff, we know that we exist in the image of God. We were made to be a divine reflection from the very start. That is the context in which you're alive and breathing on the planet. That's the context in which God made his humanity. Just a verse later... God says to those uh, first men and women that we find out in chapter 2, we name them Adam and Eve. Chapter 1, it says, God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God blessed them. Perhaps that was the first marriage ceremony. He then calls them to produce children. And not every married couple will be called to or able to do that. However, in the case of the first humans on the earth, Adam and Eve, that's pretty vital to the existence of humanity that they had to go. So, you can understand why he said that. Chapter 2, Adam sees Eve, we get to the specifics now, and he bursts out with poetry, which is good news because it means romance was in the kickoff as well. Adam, it says, verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then we get our first direct mention of marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay, so Adam and Eve were in a marriage relationship. So from the start we've also been introduced to this idea that marriage isn't the point in and of itself. But it's the picture and reflection of something bigger. So even this one flesh idea, Adam and Eve were created out of one flesh. Uh, Eve, in scripture it says Eve was made out of Adam's rib. In the image of God. In marriage, husband and wife are then likened back to the one flesh idea. In being married, they become one flesh again. As if they're harking back to Eden, to that original paradise. That perfect relationship of male and female living in perfect company with God the Father alongside them. There's a return to Eden in that. And quite obviously, uh, sex is mentioned right at the start. 
The fact that sex is mentioned in the first marriage teaches us how key sex is into the creation of marriage. That's what defines it differently from a friendship relationship. So the mention of sex confirms that Adam and Eve were the first people to be married on earth. In God's design of marriage, the actual combining of lives, the sealing of this lifelong covenant, this promise, this spiritual binding that happens, has to involve sex. Without sex, known as consummation, the marriage isn't actually a complete marriage. Sex is a defining act that unites a couple as one flesh and therefore marries them. That's in the definition from the start. It's worth noting, therefore, in God's design for humanity, so in the way that we, if we're a Christian, live our lives in line with God's design, sex is a spiritual, emotional, and physical act of whole life commitment that is uniquely designed by God for marriage. Yes, marriage is far more than sex, but sex is inseparable from marriage. And that's also why later on in scripture, married couples are told to have sex regularly. They're not to deny each other physically. Because in sex, you help reflect the original Eden paradise. It strengthens your oneness as a marriage. That's not me giving you sex advice. Genuinely, that's Paul. 1 Corinthians 7. Married couples from Paul have more sex. That's all I'm saying. So from the start of scripture... We've shown that marriage is meant to reflect back to God, to the original paradise we're made for in Genesis. If we jump to the end of scripture in Revelation, Revelation actually describes how Eden will be restored. This harking back to the original design. We're actually going to come back to that later, but it's amazing the image that right from the start, we're talking about going back to the original design. Incredible. But we're not just top and tailing it, because God doesn't do that either. God weaves this image and point of marriage all the way through scripture. So let's journey on into the Old Testament. We're going to be heading into Isaiah next. But there's far more than Isaiah on the image of marriage. This imagery of the marriage relationship is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God and his relationship with his people. I don't know whether you ever spotted that, but it isn't just... Uh, humans, so-and-so married so-and-so, and they became in the line of so-and-so. There's far more about marriage than that. In the Old Testament, it's worth us realising that God was seen as a distant being, a far-off God that only the privileged few could access, like high priests, on behalf of the people. And yet, time and time in Scripture, through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, the whole book of Hosea, we see God painted, there's this picture of God painted of intimacy, of relationship, of of really knowing and friendship and marriage that will have been very controversial for how people, people viewed this far-off, distant God. Time and time again, we've got this outrageous image of like a bridegroom pursuing his bride. Of, uh, no matter how much it hurts and how much it costs, the bridegroom pursuing his bride, God pursuing his people back into relationship with him. That is throughout the Old Testament, we see that image. Like we see in Jesus coming to earth, coming all the way down to being a human in order to find us, know us, and bring us back into relationship with him. It all starts in the Old Testament. It's all still reflecting forward. That's why it's called prophecy. It's like foretelling what's going to happen. It's looking ahead and speaking about what is yet to come. Also, if you want to know um, another side to God's character and his relationship with us, if you want to know how intimate and passionate he gets and how, um, how much he really knows and cares for us and isn't a distant God, take a look at the Song of Songs. It's quite steamy stuff, to be honest. It's pretty graphic poetry, uh, talking about two lovers pursuing each other, knowing each other in all ways, physically as well as in friendship. Again, 
super controversial for the time when marriage was like a business transaction. Really controversial to have that in scripture, but it's there. Isaiah 62 gives us a great picture of what the Old Testament leads us into in the meaning of marriage. Uh, This was Isaiah talking to the people of God, Israel. They've been through years and years of hardship and trouble and turning away from God. And this is what Isaiah foretells, speaks over the people of God. Isaiah 62. No longer will they call you deserted or or your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah, meaning my delight is in her, and your land Beulah, meaning married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. This is amazing. As a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Isaiah was speaking God's inspiration. He was being shown a picture of the ultimate marriage with Jesus as the bridegroom and Israel, the people of God later known as the church, as the bride. Uh, someone's car alarm from the car washing patrol. The Old Testament points us forward to Jesus coming to earth as God made knowable and both dying and rising again in order to save and restore humanity's relationship with God. Jesus reconnects humanity to God in a perfect relationship, a heavenly marriage. Jesus makes marriage possible and marriage points what's possible in Jesus. Did you know that the Old Testament had so much to say about the meaning of marriage? Did you know that even hundreds of years before Jesus, marriage was pointing towards him? Fast forward again, let's go to the New Testament. The story doesn't stop there. It's all the way through scripture. The New Testament, straight away, the first recorded miracle of Jesus that we read in the book of John. Jesus at a party. The wine runs out. It's going to absolutely bomb. And Jesus, uh, his miracle is that he turns the water into wine and saves the, the whole party. And guess what? The party, surprise, surprise, is a wedding banquet. The New Testament starts with a wedding again. Then on we go into the life of Jesus. And these images of marriage being about God's relationship with his people are coming thick and fast. There are far too many for me to name here. There's things you're going to have to explore in your cell. Just in a nutshell, Matthew 9, Matthew 22, Matthew 25, Luke 12, John 3, all have marriage references about Jesus as the bride, bridegroom, us, the people of God, as the bride, about a wedding banquet being at the end of time, and about people being invited to this celebration and getting ready for it, not missing it, all the way through the New Testament. Jesus, an unmarried man, chose to major on marriage in his preaching through scripture. We can't ignore this. This is why marriage can't be considered just a nice tradition that the church have adopted and do quite well. It can't be seen as something that's more about ceremony and habit than anything else, just a cultural thing that might eventually die out. It can't get outdated, it can't become irrelevant, because the way marriage is used by God is above and beyond any human goal or result. Marriage can't get to the stage where it doesn't work anymore. Marriage can't be something you do if you happen to have strong enough feelings at the time for someone else. God uses marriage to reflect his unconditional and eternal love for people. A love that stretches through and beyond time, place, location, people group. Once again, we are reminded marriage just can't be about fickle old us. Marriage is God's idea, made in his image, pointing towards a specific wedding day 
that's way beyond human ceremony or anniversary. And Jesus wants us all to be prepared for that wedding day. Your marriage, if you're called to be in a marriage relationship, is like one of the many stories Jesus tells. Your marriage is actually a parable explaining God's love and his kingdom to the world. Just like Jesus uses all those parables of marriage. It isn't just a personal choice and a private thing. It is also a living, breathing signpost pointing straight to Jesus, the end wedding banquet, and saying, look at what's a glimpse of what Jesus and his church's relationship is like. Look at us having a go at reflecting him. Married friends, do you know that you're a signpost? Do you know that you're reflecting the love of God to us? We have got loads of unmarried people here at G2, and so on behalf of everyone who isn't married, thank you for those of you who are married, because you are reflecting a side to the love of God we don't know about, and we won't see unless you live it out with us in community. Thank you for being willing to share your marriages with us, the struggles and the joy, because you show us how Jesus loves his church in a way that we haven't experienced yet. Thank you, married people. Let's fast forward again to Revelation. We're at the end of the Bible now. Final book of the Bible. This gives us a description of this ultimate marriage that I've been talking about. A marriage that all human marriages, including our G2 marriages, are designed to point towards and reflect. Revelation was written to the church that was going under a huge amount of persecution in the decades after Jesus walked the earth. It talks a lot about the end of time, almost as a kind of giving hope to people that were being persecuted and killed for their faith. The writer John has visions of heaven. And he uses a lot of imagery and poetic language. And again, he majors on this consistent theme throughout scripture of a wedding banquet, the presence of a bride and a bridegroom. According to these visions of the ultimate wedding at the end of time, if you follow Jesus, not only are you a guest at this wedding, you are also the one getting married. The people of God are referred to as the bride of Christ. And the bridegroom is God himself in the person of Jesus, marrying us, uniting us, making us one with our maker. We were even singing about it just now. And uh, some of the words in that song are taken from Revelation. Listen to Revelation 21. This is John's vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Once again, we're reminded human marriage is a reflection of the ultimate marriage between God and his people. Once again, we're reminded that marriage on this earth isn't about us, but it's about shining something greater. And what an incredible picture we get to reflect. When we realise that those who follow Jesus are all going to be married one day in this ultimate wedding where we're united with Christ and the Father, and the Holy Spirit. This provides us all a healthier perspective on getting married and our married lives on earth. Being married on earth for the fleeting few years that we're here 
before we go into eternity, the kind of forever stuff, is like, Marriage on Earth is like the opening credits to the film. It's like the introductory speech before the main event. It's like the salad before the meat course. And that isn't to belittle earthly marriage at all, but it is putting a God perspective on our human experience. You are the introduction to the main event. If you desire to get married, if, if marriage is your ultimate goal in life, then actually the pressure's off. Marriage isn't God. Jesus is God. And because of God's love for us, we are all going to be married one day. And when that day comes, there's no more earthly marriage anyway. Jesus says it himself in Matthew 22. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And of course there's no human marriage in heaven. Of course not. Because there's only one marriage in heaven. And as we've discovered, that is between Jesus and his church, his people. So you can't be married twice. Jesus trumps earthly marriage. Because remember, marriage on earth is just a signpost to that marriage. So you no longer need a signpost when you've arrived at the destination, right? The wedding banquet. So we've covered a lot of ground there quite quickly from Genesis to Revelation. We've established the importance and relevance of marriage for all of us, regardless of our human relationship status. And I hope you, like me, will now have uh, even more love for weddings and want to give greater support to your friends who are married because you'll understand it on a whole new level. But why has God used marriage as his image to reveal his love for people, to relate to people? What is so special about marriage that God would use, choose to create it for us to reflect him? Why spend so much time on it in scripture? And basically, the power and significance of marriage is understood through the life and death of Jesus. Understanding marriage is only possible if you understand the power and significance of God's love for you. And understanding the power and significance of God's love for you is only possible if you understand what Jesus has already done for you. Jesus came to to earth as God's love in action. God in human form. To live out this love. The kind of love that makes marriage a reflection of the divine. The kind of love that lays it all down. John 3, 16, 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Not only is human marriage a picture of Jesus laying his life down for us by dying on the cross, but then in human marriage... We also get a chance to lay down our lives for our spouse, for the other person. We get to reflect that in your relationship with your husband and wife. The privilege of getting married on earth isn't that you get to live together, that you financially save money in the long run, or that you feel happy. The privilege of getting married on this earth means you get to commit to a lifelong promise of laying down all that you are, everything that you've got for another person. And stunningly, The other person has chosen to commit to exactly the same at the same time in the presence of everyone. You might remember this from your wedding day, those of you who are married, but we get this in the marriage vows that we hear. The bride and groom say to each other, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body, I honour you. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Within the love of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. 
You both get to reflect the love of Jesus by the way you lay down your life for the other person. And by laying it all down, you actually take up greater significance, a deeper love, a brighter reflection of the love of God together. You live a far richer love. You live out a far richer love by laying everything down than if you try and keep some things for yourself and only promise half. You go all out, just like Jesus did for us. In marriage, you lose your life, but that actually saves it. That makes the marriage. Just like Jesus lost his life for us, and we lose our lives when we give up being our own God and give our lives into the hands of Jesus as God, but then that actually saves us, brings us a full life, a true life, a forever life. It's all in the picture of marriage. The whole Jesus thing is in the picture of marriage, honestly. Laying it all down. And by laying it down together in relationship, it's not a one-sided thing. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about... Tall talks? That's amusing. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about Christian marriage. I don't know whether... Um, we're not going to go there in the whole passage, but one of, uh, Ephesians 5 is, is a potentially a controversial passage for some people if you don't see it through the lens of what we've already learned. He, he starts the whole description by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Basically, he says, lay it all down for another person because of your love for Jesus. We're not going to unpack that now, but that's how he starts with the marriage team. What does it look like to lay your life down for someone else? Brilliantly, in the next part of this series, we're having three married couples from three different stages of this journey genuinely trying to answer that question, talk really honestly about the practicalities of being married and reflecting this divine picture. That's next week. But, you know, just to whet your appetite, um, my mate, um, her husband had a dream job and a dream location, but his wife also felt called into something different, and she got a job in a different part of the country, um, and the husband laid down his dream job and his dream location because he wanted to support his wife's calling, and they moved location. I think that's an example of laying down, down your life. Or my mum took 15 years out of her career in order to raise us kids and um, basically support my dad in uh, leading a church which then gave us a house. So they both had to make these different sacrifices of who stayed at home and who went out to work and when and why. They laid down their lives for each other. Jesus Christ came to earth, was born into poverty, lived a life where he was rejected and insulted more than he was loved and accepted. He was brutally and publicly killed. Yet in his dying breaths, he spoke forgiveness over his murderers because his heart was to love and to save the people that caused him to be there. Us. In this, we understand the incredible power of laying down your life. And when you understand the true meaning of marriage, when we fully accept and own this for ourselves, this privilege that we get to lay down our lives to look more like Jesus... We, know, we don't need to bristle at this idea of submitting to one another and feel like my rights are being taken away. No way. In relationship, you get to look more like Christ. What a privilege. And amazingly, God isn't calling you to do anything he already, hasn't already done for you. He did it first. Jesus laid down his life for us whilst we were still a long way off loving him back. What an incredible gift to look more like Christ by laying down your life for someone. So to finish this brief and yet massive overview and reframing of the meaning of marriage, I want us to look again at the marriage vows, where we've already touched upon. 
These vows have been used for hundreds of years in church communities up and down the country. They join two people together in front of a whole community and they've been used for centuries. Actually, I fully recommend you Google the C of E marriage vows because you've basically got a three minute version of this talk if you read them. Stunning. Should have done that. <laughs> and these historical lines are actually incredible. The weight of significance behind these carefully crafted words is breathtaking. Particularly, especially, really, when you read them in light of knowing that marriage is a picture of Jesus' love for us first. A couple of years ago, I was speaking at a conference, and um, I, I didn't plan it, but I ended up once again talking about how we have to love the church and honour the church because we are the church. So if you're bad-mouthing the church community, that's self-harm. And then I went on to say, actually, you're bad-mouthing Jesus' wife. And I suddenly realised, of course, Jesus is coming back to marry the church, the people of God gathered. So tearing it down, bad-mouthing it, rejecting it, is doing that about Jesus' fiancé to his face. So then, in this conference, I I just started committing, I started declaring that I would commit to honour and love the church because when I gave my life to Jesus, I accepted his wife and his plan as well. And that I had to honour his people and not just say, I love Jesus, but I don't like the people. That's not how it works. He's coming back to marry him. So I started to to declare this. And as I'm making a declaration, I suddenly realised, without meaning to, I'm quoting the marriage vows. So I'm going to read them to you because, honestly, you will never hear these vows the same way again when you understand that what the words that we're saying are Jesus' commitment to us and our commitment to Jesus first. And then we might reflect it in marriage. Listen to this. So the minister would say, hypothetically, Jesus, will you take the church, G2, Miriam, to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honour and protect her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? He answers, I will. Actually, he kind of goes further. He answers, church, G2, Miriam, before I formed you, I knew you. I called you by name. I know you better than you know yourself. I love you. And whilst you were still a long way off, I gave my whole life for you so that we could be united today. That's what he says to us. Then the minister says to the bride, church, G2, Miriam, will you take Jesus to be your husband? Will you love him, comfort him, honour and protect him, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live? And then if you're a follower of Jesus, you've answered, I will. And then the minister says to the congregation, which could well be the rest of our church family, will you, the families and friends of Miriam, Paul, Tom, Dave, Support and uphold them in their marriage, their faith and journey of following Jesus, now and in the years to come. And we all, as a community, say we will, because we can't do this on our own, and you were never designed to. We were designed to be in this family unit, to follow Jesus together to the wedding day. And then the following words are breathtaking, when you realise they're actually about our relationship with God first. The bridegroom says to us, I, Jesus, take you, the church, G2, Miriam, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness 
and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part, or actually, till death us do unite. And then, if we give our lives to Jesus, if we make him our God and not ourselves, this is what we say to him. I, the church, G2, Miriam, take you, Jesus, to be my husband, my God, my saviour, my best friend, my king, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do unite. So I'm going to invite the band up now and we're going to respond to this by taking a look at the vows for ourselves. Firstly, I want to pray for us all that our thinking would be realigned to what we've heard about the real meaning behind marriage. This, this ultimate and perfect marriage that Jesus involves us in and models for us. And then on your tables, you've got pens and you've got a copy of the marriage vows. And in your own time, if you want to, you've got an opportunity to write your name into the marriage vows between you and Jesus. For those of you that follow Jesus, this may be a recommitment, maybe for the hundredth time of saying, I am reminded again that to follow him is to give him everything, to lay it all down, no matter the cost or consequence. And I vow that that is what I do by following Jesus. That is my vow, and I put a stake in the ground today by writing my name on that. It may be that you've not yet given your life to Jesus, but you've now heard he already laid it all down for you, and he's calling you back into relationship with him. For the first time, write your name on the vows. Join the family. And I want you to keep these and take them home. And just as, if you, just as you would display a wedding invite on your mantelpiece or a safer date on your fridge, do the same with that. Because that's essentially an invitation to the wedding. And if this is the first time that you've made that vow with Jesus, just as he's already said it to you, then please tell a friend that you're with. Or please come speak to me. So let me pray for us all. We'll take a moment to read these vows in our heads, hearts, all out loud to God. And then we'll worship him together, looking forward to the ultimate wedding day that we're all invited to. So Holy Spirit, thank you that you're moving in this room and that you're speaking to us about Jesus laying his life down for us. Father God, we continue to open our eyes to see this picture of the ultimate marriage. Father God, will you speak to the married couples in the room about how they are a signpost for your love? Father God, will you speak to those of us who aren't married about how important marriage is because it's about Jesus? And Holy Spirit, will you work in our hearts to have the boldness to make the vow that you call us to? To lay it all down because you've already laid it all down for us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's make our vows.